Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. Exodus 15. <coughs> we shall only be able to touch one or two portions for reading uh, tonight. You will, first of all, open the book at chapter 1. We'll read just the first verse. If you will turn to chapter 40. Chapter 40. And verse 34. Then if you will look <coughs> at chapter 3. Verse 13. Now you remember what we were saying last week. <coughs> about um, this, uh, this five-fold volume. Remember, we spoke for a while last week about the Pentateuch. And you remember that we said that the Pentateuch was to be looked upon not as five separate books as such, but as a five-fold volume. It was intended to be, as it were, one consecutive history from beginning to end. And you remember that we pointed out to you that each part, each of the five parts of this one history have a very real lesson for us. We come this evening to the second part of the Pentateuch. And one of the interesting things that I want you to notice straight away is that we have passed in this book, we have passed from a man or men as individuals and we have come now a people. Exodus is in a different atmosphere altogether to Genesis. And I think that if some of you, as I understand some of you have been speaking to do, have been reading the book of um, Genesis as well as Exodus this week, I wonder whether you have noticed the difference in atmosphere that there is between these two parts of the Pentateuch. The first is very much more, a very much more individual thing. Uh, it, you've got the atmosphere of the freedom of individuals, uh, but as soon as you get into Exodus, you're suddenly in the corporate. It's no longer the individual. Things are now related. Things are now uh, more integrated. You find that everything now is bound up with the people. You have therefore passed from... Uh, individuals to a people. And you'll also, I think, notice that um, all God's workings, all God's workings in Genesis were to produce a people. We saw last week that at the beginning it was general history, all the nations and everything else. 
Then we suddenly found that God took up three men, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we have a tremendous amount of tri seemingly trivial domestic detail put into God's history. Instead of it all being to do with governments and races and nations as the first 11 chapters, now we found that it was all to do with the household of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and how Jacob's sons behaved and what they did and what they didn't do and the rest of it. And we began to scratch our heads and wonder, well, what's gone wrong with the book of Genesis? But we found that God was out to produce a people. And I might say just in passing here that God's method has never changed, never changed. I think we can say that dogmatically. God always begins with one person. This is one of the great fundamental principles of God. He always begins with one person. You will not find a movement in the Bible which does not originate in the beginning with one person. God always says, I will make of one a nation. And that's just the way of God. And another interesting thing is this, that God will spend years on one person in hidden history sometimes. Getting something in that person, doing something in that person, and then beginning to bring others into relationship and doing something in them before ever he moves out to a people. You find then that all God's movements in the book of Genesis are towards the people. As soon as you come to the book of Exodus, you are you're in the presence of the people. But it's rather wonderful that even in, in this part of the Pentateuch, you find the same principle at work. God takes one man, Moses, and he takes that man and he prepares him, although Moses did not even know it, for 40 years. Then that man is sent into the desert for another 40 years. This time he knows he's under the hand of God. And for 40 years he's schooled in the hardest school of all. After 80 years, of preparation and instruction and tuition, spiritual education, that man is brought out as the one who is going to be used, going to be instrumental in forming the people of God. So I want you to note that in passing tonight, that God's ways are always the same. This may bring comfort to you, it may discomfort you. I don't know. Um, if God's dealing with, if we have any burden for the people of God or for the, for the interests of God, then we can be absolutely sure that God will take hold of us, he will apprehend us on this, the ground, the basis of this principle. And he will lead us into ways and do things with us that may seem very, very strange to us indeed, but the whole end in view is a people. The reproduction of a people. Do then let us seek, um, it would be a very real and blessed thing if you were to take Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph and Moses 
and see if you could find that principle in those four lines. I think you would be very blessed as in just a simple study along that line. Find that principle in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. Five men. I think you'd be, uh, you'd learn a lot from that. You know, noted the opening phrase of this book. It says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel, but the Hebrew is simply and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, you suddenly find that for the first time, God's glory is discovered. For the first time, God's glory takes up its permanent abode. I don't know whether many of you have perhaps realized that the first time that the glory of the Lord is ever actually mentioned is in the book of Exodus. In the whole book of Genesis, you will not find the glory of the Lord. Isn't that instructive? You will not find the glory of the Lord in the whole book of Genesis. The word is not mentioned. Where do you find glory? You find glory in Exodus. And you find glory touching the earth in Exodus. Now that is wonderful. Glory of the Lord touching the earth. And furthermore, you find the glory of the Lord taking up its abode on the earth, not just touching the top of Mount Sinai, not just causing a great earthquake and thunder and lightning and fire and so on, but actually taking up its abode at the heart of the people of God. Isn't that wonderful? That the first time you find the glory of the Lord mentioned, it is mentioned in the book of Exodus. There you already have a clue to uh, a, a wonderful discovery about the Lord. The glory of the Lord is linked with the corporate. Never forget. The glory of the Lord is linked with the corporate and it can never touch anything that has not been So we are now, we find ourselves then in this book. At the beginning of, the, of Exodus we find these are the names. At the end of the book we find a house filled with God's glory. Now one or two points. What about the authorship of Exodus. I don't think we have any difficulty here. We've already, I think, discussed it last week about the Pentateuch in general. Exodus was not edited. Genesis was edited. It was compiled and edited. Exodus was written by Moses. Therefore, Moses is the author of Exodus, whereas he is the editor of Genesis. If you want to have some proof for Moses' authorship, then you will find it three times mentioned in this uh, book. In Exodus 17, 14, in Exodus 24, verse 4, and in Exodus 34, verse 27. 
in those three you will find something mentioned of um, Moses writing this down. It says, in, for instance, in Exodus 24 and verse 4, Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning. It would seem from these different references that the, this part of the Pentateuch was written uh, by Moses after the actual events happened. In other words, it is probable that the account that we have here was uh, written very swiftly after these things happened. This is not at the very end of his life that he wrote it. I can't say this evening with some very, very interesting clues to that, but it is interesting. If any of you would like to follow it up, I can um, give you names and titles of books that you can follow it up. But it's very, very interesting to find that Exodus bears the atmosphere, has the atmosphere about it of an eyewitness. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it has the atmosphere of an eyewitness. These are the clues, often, to when uh, something was written. You don't find it a dry history, uh, written very much later, but there are all kinds of small things that seem to have just been jotted down when they actually, just after they happened. And um, it's one of the interesting things is this, that as someone has pointed out, if anyone else had written Exodus, they would never have spoken about Moses in the way that Moses is spoken about in this part of the Pentateuch. You know, someone did in the end write a little bit at the end of Deuteronomy, at the very, very end of it. And they, they <laughs> spoke of Moses as one of the greatest heroes of the people of God. But the impressive thing is this, that throughout Exodus, Moses is very much kept in the background. For instance, you find that um, we're told Moses couldn't speak. Moses didn't want to go to the people of God. Moses almost had to be dragged uh, along. You know, he said he couldn't talk. He hadn't got the gift of speech. He, he was slow of tongue. Uh, he said that, why didn't the Lord find someone else? And then when the Lord said, well, I'm going to send, he said, well, well, Lord, um, it's bless the man you're going to send, Lord. Uh, in other words, uh, Moses was saying, I'm not going. You blessed the man, you're going to send, Lord. And you remember, the Lord got rather angry with him then and said that uh, he was to take Aaron, his brother, and Aaron would do all the talking. In actual fact, as you all well know, um, Aaron never did uh, much talking in the life of Moses. But it is interesting to note that all Moses' weaknesses are given their right place in this record. And as people have pointed out, Later on, anyone else writing a story would have been very careful to have given a very, very much more, um, uh, shall we say, happier account of Moses himself and the role that he played. Have you ever noticed, for instance, that in this book, Moses hardly attributes anything to himself? Or at all the different points to it, he makes out that it was others. For instance, when um, judges were appointed, um, 
it is clearly pointed out that it was Jethro who suggested it, not Moses. And another point on the question of priesthood and other things, uh, it um, pointed out that Aaron was the source of it and not Moses. And right the way through Exodus, you find that it's other people who are the source of different things and not Moses. It's very interesting, but I think we will have to leave that. The date of Exodus, it would seem, would be about approximately 1,400 years before Christ. Another very interesting point. Exodus covers 81 years. Exodus covers 81 years. Now, listen to this interesting point. I trust it will be instructive. The first 12 chapters cover 80 years. And from chapter 13 right through to chapter 40 covers under a year. Actually quite a portion, all Leviticus and quite a portion of Numbers 2 make up the year. Isn't that interesting? 80 years in a few chapters and under a few months really, perhaps two-thirds of a year in a large number of chapters. I wonder what the Lord's really teaching us in this. Well, you know, a tremendous amount of history, for the most part of it, humdrum history, routine history, hidden history, insignificant to us and to men, has to be made for God to really act. I don't know whether you realize that it was this one year, this one year, that, of which it has been said, that the whole of Jewish history springs. All Jewish law, the foundation of Jewish social life, everything to do with their theology even, springs out of this one year. It centers in Mount Sinai, it centers in the giving of the law and the showing of the tabernacle. That was all one year, but 80 years were but lay behind that one year. I think that's very instructive to us all. I think some of us all want to see the Lord move very fast, but you know, sometimes the Lord has a long, painful, humdrum, routine history that lies behind some of God's quickest movements. When you think of the Lord Jesus, three years ministry that shattered the world and has shattered it ever since. Three years in which he did the work of God, work of the ages. Three years in which he accomplished the salvation of the whole of humanity from Adam to the last man that shall be born. And yet, behind it, 30 years of hidden, routine history in his own home and in his carpenter's shop. The same with John the Baptist. Some rank John the Baptist amongst the eight greatest men that the world has ever produced. And yet, do you know how long John the Baptist's ministry uh, lasted publicly? Six months. His ministry is the duration of his ministry six months he also had 30 years hidden history in the desert so let's take courage from these things 
that there's behind God's greatest movement long hidden history. Here we have it in this book of Exodus. What is the key to the book? It's a twofold key. It is simply redemption and the house of God. That's the two sides. And these two sides can never be divorced. I think that one of the tragic things that Christendom has suffered, suffered from more than anything else was that the Reformation, they divorced redemption from the house of God. The thing that we've suffered from ever since the Reformation. I was reading only the other day that one of our greatest um, scholars, um, Professor Bruce, F.F. Bruce, has said recently that since the Reformation there has never been a satisfactory doctrine of the Church set forth by any part of the um, Church of God. There was such a reaction against Rome at the Reformation that when they came out everything was personal and everything was individual consequence was that redemption and salvation was divorced from the corporate. And a very real stress has been laid upon individual, personal salvation, personal sanctification, personal glorification, going on with the Lord personally. That's all very right, very good, very true. But you see here, the book of Exodus deals with the question of redemption. You remember what the Bible is, don't you? It is not just a collection of writings about God. It is a definite, progressive revelation. In Genesis we find God, the beginnings of everything. We find God there in election. He is purposing something. Exodus reveals to us Redemption, the redemption of God. It is the foundation in the Bible for all teaching about redemption. And it all goes back to this, this um, book of Exodus, redemption. But you find that redemption has another side, and you cannot divorce that side from it. Indeed, when I was studying this through these last few days, I seriously wonder whether to drop redemption out of it altogether as far as the key to this book goes. Because quite honestly, you will find the word redemption about three or at the most four times in the whole book, whereas in Leviticus you find it again and again and again and again and again. It's most interesting. What you do find in this book is a people, a people, a people, a people. All the time it's a people. Nevertheless, redemption is there. But the other side of redemption is a people. You cannot divorce these two sides then. One is the means, the other is the end. The means is the redemption, the end is the house of God. God's redemptive purpose is to have a dwelling place. God's redeeming work is to produce a people. You see? If we are just redeemed and we stay there, we miss the point of our redemption. There are two sides to it. God redeems us as a means to an end. 
He redeems us to plant us in the land, to have us as a dwelling place. And God's glory is bound up with that dwelling place. So you see, wherever we turn in the book of Exodus, we find this twofold theme. We look at the beginning, we have deliverance. What is it? It is the deliverance of a people. If we look at the end, we have the house of God and God dwelling in it. At the beginning, we have redemption. A people by a lamb, a perfect lamb without spot and without blemish, being sacrificed. A people taken out of Egypt. A people delivered. At the end, we have God's glory filling his dwelling place in the midst of his redeemed people. So, you see, at one side, on one side, we have a people delivered, a nation born. At the other end, we have something shown, a pattern of something shown, which is the embodiment of all that God desires for that redeemed people. We do not believe that all the redeemed will be part of that house. But we believe that God's goal is to make all the redeemed part of that house. His own is to have everyone part of that uh, part of that built together as living. He, he has made provisions for every redeemed child of his to become part of that dwelling place. That is God's and redemption is the means to it. Now, I wonder whether you would like another study. I'm afraid we're giving you a lot of work uh, in these times. You say you haven't got more time to take them up. Do you find anywhere in the New Testament redemption on its own? I would like you to sometimes follow that thing. See if you can find redemption on its own in the New Testament. In other words, do you find redemption left as a personal thing in the New Testament? See if you can, um, if my words can be proved uh, in the New Testament. Whether redemption actually does lead to a body. In other words, is it just simply the Lord wants a lot of people redeemed, or do you find that it is to have a body, uh, a bride for his son? That is the key to this book. Remember what the key was to Genesis? Beginning. Beginning of Exodus. The key to Exodus is redemption and the heart of death. In other words, we have now come out of the beginnings of all, we have got down to the bedrock of it again. Now, here on the board, there is a very simple outline of Exodus. I'm afraid I couldn't do it exactly as I wanted to do it, because <clears throat> I couldn't get it in. Um, but you will see that it is conceptually. Uh, Exodus is divided into three parts. The first is to do with the deliverance from Egypt. The second is the covenant at Sinai. And the third is the house of God revealed and built. The first is the people delivered. 
And the second is a people in covenant relationship. That's very important. A people delivered is one thing. A people in covenant relationship is another. The last is a people built together as God's dwelling place. Now, in the first portion of Exodus, you will find um, that it deals with the preparation of Moses in the first four chapters. You remember um, what a wonderful story that is. I think Exodus is as thrilling, if not more thrilling, than Genesis in its typology. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, it's really wonderful, uh, Exodus, in, the, in, the, in the, the way it takes up different things and how they have been taken up in the New Testament as speaking of the Lord Jesus and of uh, so many other things. Remember how we're told that these things happen uh, as our examples. Moses was prepared in the, uh, those first four chapters. You find his prenatal history, and you find also his, the history of his birth, and then you find the history of his education, and you find then the history of his walk with God. It is a very wonderful story. The most wonderful part of all is when God spoke with Moses. Moses must have been a man of unusual courage. I was reading the Talmud the other day upon this very matter, not that you can look upon the Talmud as being inspired, but it said that Moses was a courageous man because he drove his father-in-law's flock onto Mount Sinai, which no other shepherd had ever dared to do with history. For it was always believed, even by the pagan people, round about that God lived here on Mount Sinai. And so the grass was very beautiful and not eaten by flocks. And Moses saw this and just drove the flocks <coughs> onto the place. I don't know whether it was a disregard of divinity or deity or what it was, but he drove his father-in-law's flock uh, onto the slopes of Mount Sinai and showed it was there that he saw the book there's something very wonderful then about the call of Moses and you remember the way that Moses is a very different man to the man at the beginning you then will find secondly that the next chapters from chapter 5 to chapter 12 deal with the judgment of God upon Egypt we forget you know that for any man or woman who has been redeemed, it meant tremendous judgment upon satanic authority. I don't believe that we as the children of God realize what it means. It's only when we feel so struggling to come to the Lord and in the group of something far, far more powerful than they can do anything about it that we realize that an amazing thing it is to be redeemed. I don't know whether they have awakened any soul in your heart, but I have seen in my short experience souls that have struggled to get through and haven't got through. Something to be strong to iron up the past, to 
hold on to them. Will not let them go. Now that's Egypt. And you must not think that the enemy was just a little bit weak on you. And because of that, you escaped and somehow came to the Lord. Many people think, well, oh, dear, come to the Lord. Well, they made a decision at some time. It's just as easy as that. Leave me the judgment that took place uh, behind the scenes, the power, the power, the panther power, the panther power, the panther power, has been the means of our redemption. On one side, you have the joy of deliverance. On the other side, you have the terrible death directly as the panic path. And that is the explanation for many of the Lord's saying about now is the prince of this world cast out. Another place it says he stripped them naked by his cross. Could you just fall, take the panic of his eyes, strip him naked. So we must remember that there was tremendous judgment involved. Again, tonight we're only having a very swift bird's eye view of Exodus. So we can't stay with the, with the play. But there is in it, within itself an amazing shadow just in the ten place. And then you remember they end with the Passover, the land. Not stop and not blame. The blood of the land being put upon the doorpost and the lintel. And the angel of death passed in the past, the institution of the past. And then in chapter 13 and to chapter 15, we have the Exodus itself. The people released, the people moving out from Egypt, the people pursued, the people miraculously delivered at the shores of the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian host destroyed in the sea. So <clears throat> that is the first part um, in the deliverance. And you know, it is not fanciful to see in here, as the New Testament writers do, the most wonderful foreshadowing of the Lord from birth. It is the most remarkable thing that even uh, in his birth, you remember the edict that went forth about the male children at that time, and everything else bears a close resemblance to the same story. The Lord's remarkable uh, preservation, his growth, his hidden history, and then after that, the terrible judgment of Calvary upon Satan. And the Lord himself speaking in Luke about when my exodus is accomplished. You remember he speaks of the beginning authorized version, my deceit in the American Standard Version now, rightly translated, when my exodus is accomplished. He looked upon Calvary as an It was the deliverance of a people. So the principle holds good, as I have already mentioned to you, that God always begins with one and produces a people. The Lord Jesus is God's great progenitor of the people of God. He began with one and has produced a people. By the Lord Jesus spoke of the cross, grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying. 
three feet of deliverance at any rate is a very, very wonderful thing. It involves a deep, hidden preparation. It involves a terrible judgment. It involves a death of an innocent life. It involves the deliverance of a people. So we see there something very wonderful. Then we come to the next part of Exodus, which we find from chapter 16 to chapter 24. And there you will find um, in the few chapters from 16 to 19, you will find the journey um, from the Red Sea to um, Sinai, which is still spiritual instruction. When I think of the Pool of Mara and what it means. You know, if I may just say for one brief moment, although I hope not to, with the Pool of Mara, like this David, I have often thought um, how remarkable it is that the Lord should put into such small instances so much spiritual uh, value. You know, many of our lives, just like the tools of God, they're different. We know they're different, and others know they're different. No one can do it. They've got that brackish. Uh, it may be all kinds of things that have done that to our lives, but very well, they're like tools of marble. They look very nice, they look very inviting, but they're different. And they're really, in many ways, something that is doesn't really fit. When people drink in our waters of our lives, they find that they're not what they look. As you know that at the side of the pool of Mara there stood a tree, and trees and sticks are always steep of type of life, don't they? And it seems to me that the Mara and its tree at the side speak of a life uh, that has not yet repudiated itself. And because of that, it's not life to do. But Moses is told to cut the tree down and toss it into the water. And it says that the water is frozen. You see, these small stories, these small incidents, are placed there for spiritual values. We have to learn sometimes to get our lives to graphic, and our walks of our life are bitter. There's only one way out, it's possible, it's the repudiation of our faith. The taking the ground of the cross. Something being thrown into the water, the next day, and then the next day. So we find, anyway, there are many stories there, we can't say them. You come to chapter 20, and you find the giving of the law. From chapter 20 to 23. What is this? Why does the Lord uh, um, speak so much about this? Why is these, these few chapters, the 20 to 23, the foundation so much later on? This is the whole dispensation. It's called the dispensation of law. Paul, referring to it, speaks of it as Mount Sinai. He, he speaks of one whole age, one whole dispensation, as being Mount Sinai. He speaks of two dispensations, Mount Sinai and the other Azar. These two uh, different ages. And so you see here you've got Sinai and all that Sinai stands for. 
Have I suppose most of you have read these chapters. Anyway, you haven't actually read them, and I want you to know how remarkable they are. Perhaps you will be a little amazed at the way the Lord comes right down to the most practical details about people's land and whether you should lend when you lend money to the poor, whether you should take interest. And if you take a person's clothes, as, as they did in the week, as a pledge uh, for lending them money, you would return them at night, lest they die at the cold. And so on, you find them all here. Lord, that's that one you take it as thanks to the Lord, taking Moses up the top of the Sinai to tell him all that kind of thing. But you see, here you have what we call a moral righteousness. Moral righteousness. First of all, we've got the Ten Commandments, which I trust we all know well. And out of the Ten Commandments we have, in chapter 21, 22, and 23, the expansion of the Ten Commandments. <coughs> First you have the Ten Commandments, and then you have an expansion of them. Thinking as uh, a question of not may, as it were, making any graven images on it, expanded, and our whole relationship to God is... Um, uh, brought into view. First group. See? The Sabbath is brought into view. And the whole question of first fruits is brought, brought into view. Uh, all that time. Then our relationship to the Lord. Then our relationship to our husbands or wives. Then our relationship to our children. Then our relationship to slaves. Then our relationship to the foreigners or aliens in our land. Everything is covered by this law that is given. God gives a law. And then he brings it right down to practical terms. And you know, sometimes I wonder what the Lord's people have taken the law in a right way to their heart. I could say a little bit more about that in a moment. I want to just leave it like that now. God gives a law. And when we've given the law, Moses comes down the mount to the people and he reads what is called the Book of the Law. And the Book of the Law is Exodus, from Exodus 20 to 23, or it's called the Book of the Law. And he reads it to them. And the people say, all the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses slays the bullet and the blood is sprinkled upon the book and upon the people. And the people again say, all the Lord has told you, we will do and be obedient. This is the ratification of God's covenant. God now has taken a further step. First he delivered the people, now he puts himself into covenant relationship with the people. He says to the people, here is the basis of my covenant. And the people say, Lord, if that's the basis of your covenant, we will do it. We will be obedient. Moses says, bring a heifer and slay. And he sprinkles the book and sprinkles the people. What does this speak of? It speaks simply of this, that God is making a covenant with his people on the ground of moral righteousness. And he said, my basis for doing this is that someone's going to die for you, and in him you have died. In other words, even under the old covenant, there was something of the shedding of blood and of death. It meant that 
there was a two-sided death. Someone died for the people, and the people died in that fight. God made the covenant. And from that day, we found the people in covenant relationship with God. From that day, the Jew boasted whatever he wanted, that he belonged to the covenant people of God. God had made a covenant with him. And he, God said, I will make you my peculiar prayer among the nations of the earth. And ever afterwards, the prophet spoke of this covenant as a marriage relationship. This covenant is always spoken of by the prophet as a marriage covenant. God bringing a people into a marriage relationship with himself and making a covenant with them. So that, I, that is really the second portion of it. The last portion of Exodus is from chapter 25 to chapter 40. And I think you will all have noticed that in that portion, the one thing that is talked about is the palace. Now, some people don't like us repeating things, but it's a very interesting thing how the Bible repeats itself. I don't know if any of you have been wrong before by Exodus, because first of all, we get the law given in one place, and in the next few chapters it's repeated all over again in a slightly different instance. Then we get the giving of the tabernacle, and then it's all repeated all over again after one chapter's day. But I think sometimes the Lord has to do that kind of thing, and for various reasons, not only to really uh, emphasize it and write it upon our hearts, but also to um, make things utterly clear. You will see that the explanation you will find here, Exodus 25 to 31, those chapters, it is the pattern revealed. God takes Moses up again into the mountain. Now this is interesting. First of all, Moses has gone up into the mountain of the Lord, specifically. Then he went down from the mountain and it was ratified amongst the people. Then God spoke him again, he went up again into Sinai, into the cloud, it says. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he was away from the view of the people. You know, I think most of you will know that happened in that 40 days. But whilst he was up there, that thought after one chapter's break. But I think sometimes the Lord has to do that kind of thing for various reasons, not only to really uh, emphasize it and write it upon our hearts, but also to um, make things utterly clear. You will see that the explanation you will find here, Exodus 25 to 31, those chapters, it is the pattern revealed. God takes Moses up again into the mount. Now this is interesting. First of all, Moses has gone up into the mount and the law was given to him. Then he went down from the mount and it was ratified amongst the people. Then God spoke to him again, he went up again into Sinai, into the cloud, it says. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he was away from the view of the people. You know, I think most of you will know what happened in that 40 days and 40 nights. But whilst he was up there, that 40 days and 40 nights, and I might just say that it's very interesting in the book of Exodus how the figure 40 recurs again and again and again. I don't know whether any of you have noticed that, but it's very, very interesting. Um, you will find, whilst he was up there in the 40 days and the 40 nights, God showed to him the pattern. 
Now many people have wrongly understood this word pattern. They think it's a blueprint. And I've often heard people speak about um, God showing Moses the blueprint of the tabernacle. But the word doesn't mean that at all. It means the type. Or um, he showed him uh, the, the type itself. He saw something up there. It wasn't just a blueprint. He looked on something and he saw something. And he came down with something clearly in his mind, in his heart. Um, you will notice then a terrible thing. And this again is true now as we're beginning to work through the Word of God. is true in every new movement of God. Moses comes down and for the first time in the history of the human race, God has disclosed fully his heart's desire. And as Moses comes down, you know the Lord told Moses to go down. As he comes down, he finds the whole camp arrived. There has been made a golden calf, and the people are drinking and eating and playing. Aaron himself had fashioned the calf and made it. And uh, you know the story how Moses broke the tables of stone and how he ground the calf <coughs> into the water and made the people drink it. And you know perhaps the most serious and most terrible and solemn side of it all when Moses said, whoever there is who will take the Lord's side, let him come unto me. And it says, the whole house of Levi came to Moses. Moses said, take your force and go throughout the whole camp from end to end. Let every man slay his brother and his father. Slay the closest relative. Take no note of it. They must go through the camp and must put an end to this terrible thing. And it says that the sons of Levi did as Moses commanded. Then you find a remarkable thing. God calls Moses again up into the mount, and the covenant is renewed. The people, no sooner had the covenant been made, the people broke it. And as soon as the people broke it, God renewed it. But you will, in, you will note that the interesting thing is that in chapter 33 and 34, God reiterates all that he said, in the earlier chapters, 20 to 23, with some significant differences, he leaves out everything to do with our relationship with one another. And in the renewing of the covenant, he only stresses the relationship with himself. Now, isn't that interesting? Because obviously what had happened with Israel was that they forgot their relationship to the Lord, although the relationship with one another still held good. And the Lord was stressing once again the need of a direct, personal relationship with himself. And then the last chapters are to do with the building of the house, not the revealing of it, but the actual building of the house. <clears throat> now, one or two interesting things there, I might just point out. <clears throat> the Lord gives the pattern of the house. There is immediate failure, just as with Adam, there was failure, Noah, there was failure, Shem, there was failure, 
even with Abraham, as soon as he was in the land, he went down to Egypt. Isaac wasn't soon left alone, and he went down. Always failure. When it comes here to the covenant made with the people, there's immediate failure. The interesting thing is that the Levite comes into view. And this has a great spiritual lesson for us, that because of man, things will always fail. But God always has his spiritual Levite. He always has that which will give him his life. And God prepared to go on with what will give him his life. So he renews the covenant on the grounds of men who are so utter that they're prepared to slay even their own sons and fathers. That's a very hard-hitting thing, isn't it? When we see this whole question of the church, and some of you wonder, well, often this question of our affections and our desires and the things that are closest to us, they're the things that hinder us. Levites are those that are so holy with God that much as they may love those closest and nearest to them, they, can, they have to take the sword sometimes for the closest and most intimate time because and for the sake of the Lord. So <clears throat> we find then the book of Exodus in outline. I <clears throat> think that might be a little heavy, but it, it is there. It's the whole book from end to end, you will find. It has its three parts, and the foundation of it all is simply this question of redemption. Well, then, let's sum up everything. What is the message, then, of this book? What is the message of this part of the Pentateuch? It is simply that God has redeemed us with a tremendous goal in view. That is really the message of the book. God has redeemed us with a tremendous goal in view. If we stop short at the means, we shall never reach the end. We must look upon our redemption, our salvation, as a means, and not as an end. When we come to the Lord, we have got to recognize that the goal is ahead. Our salvation wasn't the goal. Our salvation was but the means to an end. And we have also got to recognize that nothing short of that goal will ever satisfy God, ever. And nothing short of that goal will ever inherit the glory of God. Those two things go together. Our redemption is a means to an end. So we see in the book of Exodus, if we sum it all up, four things. The first is God reveals himself for the first time in history by his name, Jehovah. I am that I am. A name that always speaks of God's redeeming love for us. He reveals himself for the first time as Jehovah. And ever after, we find that name always brings into view God's covenant and God's grace. God's redemption. The second thing we find about this book is that it is the realization of our redemption. God has got the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world and 
by that land has realized our redemption. Our redemption is legal in its foundation in the sense that someone has died for us and therefore, as it were, the angel of death has passed us over. We've been wonderfully legally saved. But secondly, it's a practical salvation because God has not only legally saved us from the world and from sin and from death, but he has wonderfully delivered us out of this present evil age. So we have uh, this twofold redemption, <clears throat> which is very, very wonderful. On one side we have the land slain for us. On the other side we have a wonderful deliverance from this present age and kingdom. And then you'll also notice that there is a basis for our redemption. And this I don't think many of us sufficiently understand. God did not redeem us on the ground that he as it were, as many people say, he was very, very merciful and patted us on the back and said, well, I'm terribly sorry about the mess you've got yourself into, but never, don't you worry, I'll save you. Many people's idea of the cross is that it's God becoming all loving. He sort of looks at the whole of humanity and says, I'm so sorry about all this, I'll save you. The basis of our redemption is a fulfilled law. It is the Ten Commandments and the whole expansion of them utterly kept. Perfect righteousness is the basis of redemption. Perfected moral righteousness is the basis of redemption. No one has ever been saved apart from a perfected righteousness. Every man and every woman that has ever been saved has been saved on the basis of a law that has been utterly kept. And you know what that means? It means that Christ is the end of the law or the fulfillment of the law to everyone that believes. You see, God could never have saved you or me if there hadn't been one who was perfected moral righteousness. And it sounds very technical. But the Lord Jesus is perfected moral righteousness. Everything you find in Deuteronomy, everything you find in Numbers, everything you find in Leviticus, everything you find in Exodus about the law, the Lord Jesus kept perfectly. He was perfect moral righteousness. God was, man was, self was. He kept the law in every single point. On that ground, God saved you and saved me. But does that mean that you and I can do anything? Surely not. For the one who kept the law perfectly in every point, although tempted in all points like as we are, is inside. And the law of the spirit of life now is the thing that will govern us. If, you see, quite honestly, this is the point. If you and I are walking according to the spirit, we shall find that the law of Exodus is kept. We'll not be conscious of it. I've often noted that kind of thing. See, I mean, some Christians can, uh, can be very hard in striking a bargain. And yet they think that they are walking according to the Spirit. Some Christians can lend and expect a very big interest. 
I'm not a legend of a brother or a sister. But you see, if we walk according to the law, to, according to the Spirit, these are the things that we shall be checked up. We may not even be conscious they're in the Bible, but we shall be conscious of something inside making us very uncomfortable about things. And later on, when we read, we shall find, well, I never did. I remember the shock. I'm afraid I still fail on this point, but I remember the shock I once had. I was responsible for someone's wages, but I kept them overnight. And I was never really um, ever thought about it. But at that point, I remember there came a day at a point where I became very, very uncomfortable about it. I couldn't think rightly. Until over the weekend, I happened to be reading part of the New Testament, something which just simply said, Thou shalt not keep the wages of any overnight. There's something, you see, uh, even in the small things to do with our lives, we may all fail in many points in the, these things, and we do fail. But if we walk according to the Spirit, we shall find that the Lord is going to, by the law of the Spirit of life inside, work out something. So let us note that, and let us also note that the end of our redemption is the house of God and the land. It, the Lord saved us, he redeemed us for on the basis that the Lord Jesus has kept the law. But you know it's also wonderfully true that uh, the end of our redemption is the house of God to be really built in to the house of God. That's the end of our redemption. And not only to be built in the house of God, but to be in the land. The house of God speaks of God's dwelling place. The land always speaks of the fullness of Christ. So remember that. But the end of our redemption is to become part of God's dwelling place. And the uh, end of, the, of becoming part of God's dwelling place is to become one of those that becomes the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You and I are destined to become the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Lord, we do ask thee to just take these words and blot out anything untoward, mm. anything more that not of thyself, at the same time write upon our hearts and in our spirits, Lord, everything which is of thyself. We may learn thereby. Lord, we do pray that the goal and the end of our redemption shall be wonderfully and gloriously, by thy grace, achieved. We shall become those, Lord, who become thy dwelling place, a home of God, a habitation of God in the spirit. We ask it in his precious name and for his sake.